If you'd open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 16. I'm sure most of you have books or things that you read that are your favorites. I have a biography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon written by Arnold Dallimore, which is, um, every time I read it, I get to the end of the book. Now, you know, Spurgeon died in 1895. Every time I get to the end of the book, I cry because uh, he died. I, I know he's been dead for a long time, but uh, you fall so in love with the, with the man and his ministry during that time, you just don't want the book to end. I feel that way about Romans. I have enjoyed this time in Romans so much, I don't want it to end. I want to stay in these themes and uh, who knows, maybe we'll, we'll just do that. Uh, you know, it could happen, as they used to say. Let me actually get this going. These last three verses, if you will, bear the weight of the entire book. Everything that's come before rests on this final place. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 25 and 26 are one sentence. Uh, Actually, all three verses are one sentence. But the weight of all this rests on, look at everything in 25 leading up to that last phrase. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this whole package This preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. To do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. Now that that phrase should be familiar to you. The book of Romans virtually began with that same phrase. Turn back to chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart by the gospel for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Sound familiar? That's just what you heard. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. So everything in the book of Romans sits between those two bookmarks. He began with this idea that the the gospel and Christ's coming was to bring about the obedience of faith and then he ends with that same idea. What, what everything we've been working toward, everything we've been reading and teaching and preaching, says Paul, is all aimed at coming to this one place for you to bring about the obedience of faith. 
So it behooves us to spend a little time unpacking that phrase. What in the world is the obedience of faith? That's, that's what we need to explore, and we will this morning. It's really a two-sided coin, if you will. It has two aspects to it. The first is this. The call to obey, if you're keeping your notes, this should be in there. The call to obey is first and foremost a call to believe. This gets lost somewhere in human religion. The idea is, in most religion, the call to obey is to follow a set of rules. And if I follow that set of rules, somehow God will be pleased with me, and therefore I will have an admission into his kingdom. And the gospel is contrary to that thought entirely. This is what, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion on the face of the earth. The call to obey is not to a set of rules. The call to obey is to believe on Jesus Christ. That's the obedience he's looking for, is to believe. It's an astounding statement, isn't it? Because we, we don't think in those terms naturally. We obey the gospel by believing the gospel. That is the very fundamental reality of justification by faith alone, of the gospel itself. Not only here do we get that idea. Let me read a few passages for you. Romans ten sixteen. Paul chides the Israelites by saying, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. And what's the problem with that? How have they not obeyed the gospel? He quotes Isaiah, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? How how did the Jews not obey the gospel? They didn't believe what God had spoken to them. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 talks about when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They're not believing. They're not preparing for that return. It's had no impact on them. They haven't embraced this as truth that frames reality. Or 1 Peter 4.17 For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And how is the gospel to be obeyed? It is to be believed. Now let me give that to you in one succinct sentence out of 1 John 3.23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And love one another, just as he has commanded us. To obey the gospel is to believe God. And to believe all that God says, ultimately, but to trust him. We'll work through that in more detail. But to believe God, the gospel contains the reality about our sinful condition. We, we believe the gospel. We believe that, yes, God has pronounced judgment on the fallen human race. We sinned against him in Adam and, and we're lost and we abide under his wrath continually. It's to believe that there is a coming final judgment, that, that that day will come when Jesus Christ will appear and will judge all men by his own righteousness But it's more than that. It is to also actually trust yourself to Jesus Christ as your sin bearer. You've got to see him at Calvary taking the wrath of God for all those who put their trust in him 
so that they might be justified before God, declared righteous. It's to believe that there's forgiveness for all who come and put their trust in Him. And what's the warrant for that faith? The cross. Pure and simple. It's the cross. Put your finger in Romans 16 for a second and go back to Romans chapter 3. Let me refresh just a couple of verses there. Here's, here's part of this gospel that we're believing, understanding all of it. For Verse 23, for all have sinned. And what's the nature of our sin? We have fallen short of the glory of God. We were created to display His image, His glory, and we have fallen short of that. That is our great sin. And are justified, made righteous, declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And what's to be done with that? To be received by faith. That's how it happens. We believe the truth. Christ is set before us as a propitiation, a satisfaction for sins. And as Bengal says, this word, this concept of being put forward, he says, is to be placed before the eyes of all. Jesus Christ has been portrayed before the whole world as the sacrifice of God for sin. And that's what God has done. He's put him forward for us. He's not hidden like it once, like the presence of God once was in, in the Holy of Holies, where the ark was behind the, the curtain. But he's like the brazen serpent. And Jesus said, when I'm lifted up before all men, you see, I'll be drawing all men unto myself. That's it. When I'm lifted up as the one who can remove the death sentence, and you look to me, then your sin is forgiven. And so in John six twenty eight and 29, they came to Jesus and they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What are the things that we ought to be about? And Jesus answered them in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This isn't rocket science, but it is hidden from the natural man, isn't it? Because our natural inclination is to work for righteousness, not to be pronounced righteous by believing the gospel. By trusting Christ. The Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31, and they said to him, when he said, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And maybe, maybe there's somebody here right now, you're, you're saying, I see, I see these people, these nice dressed up Christian people, smiling, singing, doing all those nice things. And I can tell that they, they drink in those words with the comfort that they believe. I wish I could believe. A few years ago, I was at a youth camp. And at the end of the week, any number of teenagers who had come to know Christ throughout the week were standing and were talking about what had happened to them during that time. And then one young, very courageous young man stood up and sobbing said, I see what this has meant to all of you. Oh, how I wish I could believe, but I don't. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you can't grasp this. Maybe you can identify with that that dad who came to Jesus in Mark 9, whose son was possessed of a demon, and, and he said, Lord, if you can do anything, help me. And he said, 
if I can do anything, all things are possible to him who believes. And the man cried out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I've got some sense that you can do this, but, but my faith isn't there. And sensing the fear and the darkness of his own heart, he just cried out, but help my unbelief. And what was amazing in that account is that his unbelief was no hindrance. Jesus still healed the child. His prayer was still heard. Because Jesus speaks as the one who's both the author and the finisher of faith. He's the one who gives it. If your heart is cold and unmovable this morning, you say, I want to believe that gospel, but I can't. My heart, I can sense it. I know I can't believe. Run to him. He's the one who gives faith. And he doesn't refuse those who come. He's the one who can put that in your heart this very hour. Cry out to the one who gives faith as freely as the salvation that comes through it, he will not pass you by. In Matthew twelve twenty, the prophecy about Jesus is that, that a bruised reed he will not break. If you're in that, in that condition where you know you can't, he won't, he won't snap you off. Come to him and, and say, I can't. A smoking wick, a smoldering wick, he, he won't stamp it out. If there's the smallest spark there, cry out to him. He's the one who gives faith. You have to understand, especially if you, those of you who aren't Christians this morning, and this would probably be a good reminder for those of you who are, the only thing we ever bring to our salvation is our sin. That's it. It's the only thing we contribute. We bring our guilt and our shame and our brokenness. And Christ takes it away and washes it with His own blood. So bring him your unbelief this morning and see how the the gift is given by the giver to everyone who lacks. Paul preaches this gospel to bring men to the obedience of faith so that they will obey the gospel by believing the message. That's where we are. There's a second half of it. The second way that we are brought into the obedience of faith is that it is by believing that we gain the lifestyle of obedience. And that may sound, again, contrary to some of you, because we're so used to, okay, I come into the saving knowledge of Christ by faith, and that's great, now now I'm, I'm saved, but how do I now then begin to live in that freedom and in that obedience? And the book of Galatians was written to say, it's divided into two halves, if you could not be justified by your works, by obeying the law, then you can't be sanctified by obeying the law either. That isn't what it does. It has no power. It it can't help you. It can't encourage you. It can't strengthen you. It can't do what you want done. What we're after in the Christian life, those of us who know Christ here this morning, you all know the struggle, and every one of us is yearning to be freed completely from sin's dominion. That's all that obedience is. It's freedom not to sin. That's, the, that's what we're looking for. And, and Paul says, I, I want to bring you there. That's what this gospel is about. And you obey it by believing it, and then in believing it, you are freed to the lifestyle that goes along with that. The same way, and in concert with the way we live free from sin's penalty through faith, that's how we begin to, to have the power to live free of sin's dominion. 
what, what you need to see here, what we all need to grasp is this connection that Scripture makes between believing and obedience and sin. Uh, turn back to Hebrews chapter 3 for a moment. We had it read for us this morning. There's a principle here. If you grasp this and bring it back to the other things, it will begin to make a, a lot of sense for you. In this great chapter 3 where the theme is to show us that Jesus is so much greater than Moses, that he transcends the old prophet. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, starting in verse 7, cited from Psalm 95. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, back in Psalm 95, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, talking about the Jews in their rebellion in the wilderness, on the day of testing in the wilderness where, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. And therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. What had happened was they had come out of their Egyptian captivity and in just a few weeks' time they had come right up to the border of Canaan land. And as they were at that border, they said, well, let's send spies over and see what we're going to have to face. And so 12 spies went over and they came back and 10 of them said, what we have to face is something we cannot do. The giants are too big. The cities are too well-walled. We can't win this battle. And two of the men said, no, we're well able to go up and, and win the battle. Why did two say we can? Was it because they knew some secret military trick? No, it's because they believed what God had said. I've prepared this land for you. So he brings them up to the, to the border and says, go. And they said, no, we're not going to. They disbelieved that God could accomplish what he had promised. And in the process then, Moses goes before God and comes back down and, and God says, then they're all going to die. They're going to die in the wilderness. They've, I've given them the opportunity and they've passed it up and, and so they can't live through this. And it says that that night the people were, were just distressed at God's word that they weren't going to be able to go in and, and take the land. And so they actually said, okay, well, tomorrow we'll go ahead and do it. And they tried. And Moses warned them, said, don't do it. You go. You're going to get, you're going to get beat. And they did. They were slaughtered. Because they had, they had passed that opportunity, and God then says, for their unbelief, they will die in the wilderness. Now follow this. Take care, brothers, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is what sin does. It deceives us by hardening us against the promises of God, and so we disbelieve Him. This is the core of everything. Follow it through. <clears throat> look at verse 16. And, and look now at the synonyms and the way they're used. Follow this. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? That's the first thing. Rebellion is the first idea. Was it not with all those who left um, Egypt? Led by Moses, the whole, the whole group, except two. Two men from that original group ended up in Canaan land. Only two. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? They rebelled, 
and they sinned. And with whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And then he summarizes it. So we see then that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Their rebellion, their sin, their disobedience is all summed up in one word, unbelief. That's, that's always where sin gets the better of us. It's always in unbelief. So all of this finds its sum in unbelief. And in what specific ways they failed to believe, we need to look at more carefully some other time. But the bottom line is this, unbelief. This is why in Romans 14.23, we had that last bit of the sentence read for us, for whatsoever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's the direct connection. Which is why Hebrews 11.6 can say that without faith it's impossible to please Him. He's pleased by being believed. If we were to short circuit this entire study, everything we're looking at today, if we were to take all of Romans and sum it up in this In this one question, the $64,000 question of all the ages, it would be this question, what does it take to please God? To believe Him. That's it. God is most pleased when He is most trusted. That's what He looks for. Belief. Trust. To believe Him in everything. So, That doesn't answer the question. Let's go on and tie it together. How does that then bring us into a lifestyle of obedience, of freedom from sin? Let me bring one more thing to your attention, and then we'll unpack that completely. Remember, as you look through these passages, and as you look at what Paul says in this closing verses of Romans 16, that he is called to preach the gospel to bring us to the obedience of faith. There are two things that are missing in that statement. He does not preach the gospel in order to bring us to obedience to the law or the obedience of fear. That's not where obedience comes from. Never. It always comes from faith. There's a direct connection here. I'll show you how that works in just a moment. And with that... Pack in the back of your mind a verse we're going to come back to about three or four times in the next few minutes, which is in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, obeying the law or not obeying the law, counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's so important. You miss that, you miss everything. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. So we find that the first specific way we need to believe as the foundation of our obedience is, and if you're going to be keeping notes, it's under letter A, that we believe or we do not doubt His posture toward us. It's Hebrews 11.6. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. What are the two things? Some of you know this by heart. First, that He exists. If I'm going to draw near to God, I have to believe that He exists. But I also have to believe a second thing. 
that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That he is disposed favorably toward us. You cannot draw near to God unless you believe that he is favorably disposed toward you. That his face smiles when he sees you. That he's looking to you. That he loves you. I must have some sense of that. Our boldness to draw near to Him is directly proportional to our grasp of His loving willingness to receive us. The reason why most of us don't pray very much is because we're not sure how God's receiving us. The more we understand how willing He is to receive us, the more we run to Him. But the less we think He's willing to receive, willing to hear, that He really delights in us, the less we draw near to Him. So obedience in believing the gospel has got to come back and say, hey, I believe the gospel. I'm justified in Christ. God's disposition toward me is always one of favor. He loves me. He delights in me. He rejoices in me. He loves to see me coming when I say, Lord, I got a problem. He doesn't, he doesn't screen his calls. He doesn't put his voicemail on. He says, come on in. I so want you to come to me. Beloved, we have lost that sense because every time we fall or fail, we go back to thinking that somehow our acceptance with him is rooted in our obedience rather than Christ's. And the whole joy of justification is that our acceptance, we are accepted in the beloved For God to stop accepting his children, Jesus would have to be the one who sins, not you. Because it's his righteousness that makes you acceptable. That's his favor toward you. That's how he receives you. He he wants us to relax in that relationship and not sweat it. Virtually all of you here know that um, I went through a, a divorce in 1992. Those things bring all sorts of baggage with them. So I meet my wife in 2000, 2001, and we get married now. And she starts talking to me about the fact that I keep living with her like a person who won't put all their weight on the airline seat. Get on the airplane and kind of hold yourself up. You you can't relax there. Because for some reason you still don't trust. And that's exactly the way many of us as Christians live with God. Like we can't trust the relationship to suffer the strain of who we are. And beloved, it's a lie. It's a lie. It keeps Christians paralyzed. We're afraid to act. We're afraid to trust. We're afraid to rejoice. Because what happens if I sin in the next ten minutes? Christ died. His blood is sufficient. There's continual cleansing to those who walk in Him. What's the big deal? i got news for you. You are going to blow it in the next ten minutes. You are. You're going to think some evil thought. You're going to think poorly of somebody. You're going to doubt. You're going to fear. You're going to do something really stupid and sinful. You think Jesus is shocked? He's sitting up in heaven going, oh man, what do they do now? I didn't anticipate that. You think that's how he lives with us? The omniscient God who, 
who knew every sin you were ever going to commit your entire life before he died on the cross for you. You see. But we don't live in that, do we? We, we live like, like he still got us at arm's length and, and this is all still a, a performance game and it isn't. This is why we preach the cross to all men. Here's your warrant to believe, every one of you. Jesus told us to preach this gospel to every creature. And he promised that all, to come, all that come to him, he won't refuse. Adam's disobedience was due to his unbelief. He failed in that moment in the garden to believe that God was loving toward him. The deceit was God is withholding from you the most loving thing. This fruit, you need this fruit. This is going to make you a God. This is going to bring you into fullness. So what he did in that moment was he disbelieved God and believed a lie. He believed the enemy. He believed that God had some sort of secret agenda, that God was withholding the best things, that God was was not perfectly loving toward him, that God was disinclined to bless him. And it was all a lie. It is the great lie. God not only loves, God is love. So here he is. He makes all of creation. He makes man his crowning creation, puts him in the garden, gives him every advantage, every blessing. He makes his entire life to be a joy and a pleasure and to have the highest standing, to bear God's image. And man does not believe his maker, but instead believes the deceit of the enemy. And we still struggle with that lie being whispered in our ears today as believers. Don't we? Deep down, when the tragedy comes, when the hard time comes, when the, when, the, when the difficult thing to figure out captures our lives, we start thinking, where's God's love? He's got something against me. Something's wrong. There's a defect in His love. And beloved, that's always a lie. And it's why we don't live in joy with Him. Don't live in freedom with Him. Don't don't rest in Him. And what hope is there for us if we think that God's against us? Uh, You, who aren't Christians here this morning, there's a dual reality to this. There is... There is the reality right now, the sense which is truth, which is, which is God is angry with you and with your sin, and that He is, you're already abiding under His wrath, and He will one day judge you completely, but that He also will receive you if you'll come to Him, because He's already crucified His Son and made provision for sin. And He'll, He'll, He applies it to all who believe. And the obedience is to believe. And there's where the forgiveness is. That's where the cleansing is. That's where the, the truth is. And so it is that, that we hear Jesus on the last day of the festival, shortly before his own crucifixion, Come unto me, all you who are weak and burdened down. Flung open the doors. Come. I'm favorably disposed to receive everybody who will come. That's the truth. And somehow we forget it. And so, and so the closing phrases of the book of Revelation, the end of God's revelation to man in the inscripturated form, in the fullness of its perfection, has this astounding phrase that both the Spirit and the Bride say what? Come! I'm favorably disposed toward you. 
I tore the curtain down. There's entrance made, and the entrance is through Jesus Christ Himself. And so, in Thessalonians, Paul can say with absolute assurance, we're pleading with you as though it was God's own voice pleading with you. Be reconciled to God. There's a favorable disposition. Come. No, He won't. He won't pervert judgment, but He will receive you and justify you. First John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we've loved God. Oh, but that He, he loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The satisfaction. Man, that's a good That's awfully good news. Having believed the gospel then, those of you who hear and know Christ, having believed the gospel, you're now in Christ. And in Christ, He restores you to live obediently because you believe God and God ceases to be under suspicion. You see? We live Christian. We ought to live in the luxury of never having to wonder for a moment how God feels about us. That's where we're supposed to live. In the absolute luxury of never having to worry a moment about how God feels about us. And we can even say to the lost, God sent me to tell you the good news of the gospel. And He loves you enough to call you to Himself. And He made provision that this message should be preached to every living creature and even, even, even appends it with a command for all men everywhere to repent, to believe. He loves you. The problem is, and what has been a problem with so much of modern preaching, is that even though God loves all, love by itself doesn't save. Mark 10.21, you recall the account of the rich young ruler as he came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, dealing with him, finally said, you know what, you've got a problem with loving your money more than loving God. So give it all away and come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. At that moment, the rich young ruler didn't believe. He didn't believe that what God had promised was going to be greater than what he already had. And the the account says that that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. But when the rich young ruler walked away, he didn't stop him. Our Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith, not through love. It's in love that God sent His Son to die. There is love displayed for you, Christ at Calvary. But it is in faith that you trust yourself to Him to believe His good will toward you in sending you the gospel this very day. Some of you here probably don't know Christ. Let me tell you that He has arranged for you to be here today so that you could hear the gospel, so that you could be reconciled to Him. He's manifested His love toward you both in the crucifixion of His Son for sins and in the preserving of the gospel for 2,000 years, and in the ordering of events so that this very day you could hear the truth once more. And so I plead with you as though it were God Himself, saying, be reconciled to Him. 
How do you obey the gospel? You believe Him. You believe Him. Now, I had hoped this would end chapter 16. You can see it has not. So we're going to pick this up where we left off next week. So let's kind of just go back and review the basic and we'll let you go. To obey the gospel is to believe the gospel. To believe what is said in the gospel, that all men are condemned and sinners, because that's what Scripture tells us. To believe that there's no way that we can, we can somehow make ourselves acceptable to God so that we can, we can be His, that that that's impossible because the standard is divine perfection, not human perfection. So even if you could be a perfect human, you couldn't earn your way back. And the gospel is that, that God sent His Son, His only Son, very God and very man, to die on the cross of Calvary, to bear the sins of lost men, poured out His wrath there, and then said to everyone who believes... To everyone who trusts him rather than themselves or their religion or anything else, there's complete forgiveness. Absolute, permanent, inviolable forgiveness and the promise of everlasting life and a life now to be lived for that great, glorious inheritance that's to be ours when he returns. Will you believe this morning? Those who do, have that absolute, permanent, unshakable, inviolable, irrevocable assurance of God's constant smile and reception of you. You're His child. He never refuses His children. Oh, what a wonderful gospel to preach, to call all men to believe, to trust Christ. And Christian, that... Going back to that gospel, you might live in joy and peace and freedom and not looking over your shoulder every three minutes to see if you did something wrong and God's rankled at you. Like God's petty. He's just waiting for you to tick him off. It's the way God is. If he's already declared you righteous in the Son, how much more righteous can you be? You can't. So enjoy it. The favor that he bestows on Christ, that same love is the very love he bestows on you. It's not one whit less. Man, what a place to live. Do you live like you know God loves you that way? Christian, that's your heritage. That's your gift. That's, that's the sweetness of being truly his and not having to fear judgment ever again. Father, I thank you so much for this time together this morning, for the rehearsal of these very crucial and central truths that that you are so pleased when you are trusted. That's the nature of, of our relationship with you. It's so it's so easy to trust one we know loves us. It's so easy to trust those we love. And Father, I pray that you'll increase our love. May, may we 
who are born again revel in the fullness of having received your divine favor in Christ. And those here who have not yet believed, may they know that your favor is such today that you will receive them if they come. That the, that the call to obey the gospel is to believe the gospel and trust themselves to the finished work of Christ at Calvary. Oh, may, may you birth that faith in our hearts across the board today, I pray. In Christ's precious name, amen.